Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Grace Fellowship. It's great to be together in worship today. I want to ask you, as we begin, to turn your attention to the screens and watch a very brief video from a show that probably all of you have either uh, seen or heard of. It has been going for 14 seasons and recently announced that next year will be its final season, and the show is American Idol. Let's watch together. Take another day. Okay, I can't listen to Before this Before you anymore. go. I can't listen to this. I really, really can't. It's, it's just awful. It's everything I hate. Yes. I hate everything. I mean, the, the whole like, act so is excruciatingly bad. Excruciatingly bad. Honestly. It's just terrible. I actually think you could have come in with a more emotional song, made a bigger impact. For me, it was a bit buskerish. Oh, my gosh. You know what? I say yes. I'm only trying to help you here. Paula, calm down a second. We can give constructive criticism. Can you now do criticism. It's okay. Look, Rebecca, I like you as a person. I can tell you a trillion percent do not attempt to have a career in music. I've done some eight. singing before, though. Stop, so you quit okay. the singing. It's time to lose it. <laughs> Say Thank goodbye. you, Bonnie. It's not about that. I mean, to put it into horse racing terms, <laughs> yes. uh, imagine <laughs> 22 horses and a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you just wouldn't stand a chance. That is just so bad. No, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. All right, Tiffany, it's a no. But you don't know how many... Ca- I am nervous to be in front of you because I watch you on TV every week. Well, that's the end of the relationship, isn't it? No, it's not. I will prove <laughs> no. to you I can sing. I Jessica, mean, I can swim, nothing. but I am not going to win ten Olympic medals no, you at don't the Olympic understand. Games. You... Let me... Never, ever in a million, billion years going to win a show like this or really? become... No, oh, no. Can I sing something else? Hey. Okay. You can't sing those big songs. Well, I will take as much direction as you guys Good. want. Good. That's the direction I want you to take. Right, then right. All right, well, then I'll see you guys next time. One day I'll fly away. <laughs> yeah, hopefully soon. Yeah. Okay, Tara. <laughs> I mean, Tara, to be honest with you, the whole thing was just horrendous. I mean, from the outfit um, to the song choice. And what was f- even more frightening is that you sounded like, like a baby, you know, and put the two together. It just didn't work. All right. I'll just leave now since you obviously okay. didn't like From the horrendous outfit, the horrendous singing, everything was wrong in this audition, Brian. I mean, seriously wrong. I hated everything. I mean, it was just awful. Awful. Wow. And, and wait a minute, people... Wow. Got another song? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Jesse, yeah. I'll tell you what it sounded like. It sounded like a cat jumping off the Empire State <laughs> Building and the noise it would make before it hit the floor. you got to ask yourself, how do they not know? Now, I'm not a frequent watcher of American Idol, especially in the last several seasons. But I got to tell you, watching some of those initial auditions can be quite humorous. How do they not know that they can't sing? 
You know, my theory is that somewhere along the way, a friend or a family member made a choice. And they didn't want to be a downer. They wanted to try to encourage the person. And so rather than tell the truth, they didn't say anything. And they let Simon Cowell tell them the truth on national TV. You know, confronting someone with the truth is not easy to do. Recently, a woman walked up to me in the lobby and she said, Pastor Rex, I just found out that my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, is having an affair. And my sister knows nothing about it. She would be devastated. And my, my brother-in-law has no clue that I know what he's doing. And she said, I, I, I feel like I ought to do something, like I ought to confront him about this, but I don't want to wreck their marriage. But don't you feel it's kind of already wrecked anyway? I'm a peacemaker, not an agitator. She said, Pastor Rex, what should I do? What should she do? In fact, what would you do if you discovered that someone in your office was having an affair with someone? What would you do if you discovered that your boss was illegally fixing the books and the company was in big trouble or going to be? What would you do if a member of your small group was exaggerating the truth, constantly gossiping and wrecking the confidentiality code among your group? What would you do if your husband wasn't taking responsibility in the home and appropriately leading and loving his family? What would you do if you discovered pornography on your son's computer? What should we do when someone we really love and care about is going down a destructive road? That's what I want to talk with you about today for these minutes together. Now, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 15. You could just leave it right there. We're going to spend uh, almost all of our time right in that one chapter. It's rich. There's a lot of scripture here. And let's learn together about this whole thing of speaking the truth in love. Now, what's happening here in 1 Samuel 15 is that Samuel, this leader whose life we've been studying in this series, Odyssey of an Emerging Leader, he's been called to confront the most powerful man in all the land, Saul, the king of all of Israel. And it isn't the first time. In fact, as you read these chapters, this is at least the third or fourth time he's been called to kind of intervene and speak hard truth. There were probably many more that we don't know about because this is a constant in the life of every leader. So as we get started here, the first thing I would say to you is that we need to be careful whom we confront and about what. Our story begins here in chapter 15 when God gives Saul this clear command. He tells him 
to do a hard thing, to go and destroy the Amalekites. Verse 2 reads, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, whatever feelings that evokes in you, one thing we have to say is the command is crystal clear. And as you read here in this chapter, it is actually repeated about seven different times. Saul knows exactly what he's supposed to do. Now, let's push push pause right there on the story and come back to it in just a moment because I'm concerned that some of you won't hear another word I say because you've been stunned by the command. And particularly if you're kind of uh, maybe new to this journey of Christianity, you're wondering, how could God do this? Is God a moral monster? Why does God have it in for these Amalekites? Well, let me tell you a little of the background. About 400 years earlier, when God had led his people out of Egyptian bondage because he is a compassionate and gracious father, that's why he led them out. He cared. He saw their toil. As they were coming out, tired, exhausted, a group called the Amalekites began to come after them. They came from the back, from the sides, and people who were weak, or who had disabilities, the young, the extremely old, they began to pick them off one at a time in a sort of a guerrilla warfare, and they showed no mercy. By the way, the Amalekites were kind of known, they were proud of the fact of when they came against an enemy, and it was a woman uh, who was pregnant, they were kind of known, and I'm sorry for the graphicness of this, but they would, with their sword, literally cut her open and extract the child from this pregnant woman. That's the kind of brutality that this people group was known for. And God has said throughout his word, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He, he typically doesn't put vengeance in our hands. In fact, he says, don't even go down that road God says there will be a payday someday, and now the time has come. We get a clue here to the feelings God had about the Amalekites in Deuteronomy 25. God speaks through Moses to the people. He says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on the journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he's giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. And so now 400 years later, the time has come for payday and God gives Saul this unsavory task. But I want you to notice just the first two words of verse 9. It says, but Saul. The command was crystal clear. But Saul decided, see, that he wasn't going to do what God 
says. He does something else. And friends, that equals rebellion. When God says, here's what I expect. I want to be crystal clear about this. And we say, "Go, God, I get it, but I'm going to do this. We're living in blatant rebellion against his will. So Saul disobeys God. He only goes part way with obedience. And partial obedience is no obedience at all. Now, the, the first thing I want us to get from this study today is we really need to be careful about whom we confront and about what. Here's the general rule. The most appropriate confrontation is when a professing believer is doing something deliberately disobedient. They're breaking the moral code. They're going outside of the clear parameters of what true believers are supposed to do. There is a clear case when appropriately we as fellow believers are supposed to confront. Now, this is not to say that we should never confront or intervene with a non-believer. For instance, if someone is being a bully and hurting someone else or someone is abusing someone or just outright being destructive in someone's life as they hurt them, it doesn't matter if they're a believer or an unbeliever, we should get involved. We should intervene. But here's what I want us to understand as followers of Jesus Christ. We should not expect, are you listening? We should not expect an unbeliever to act like a believer until they are. Oh, how important it is that we get this right. Sometimes we rush in where angels fear to try and begin to uh, sort of confront people in their lifestyle or their behavior when they've made no confession to a, to a Judeo-Christian belief whatsoever. So let me be specific. Confronting an unbeliever about the fact that they took the Lord's name in vain or they told a crass joke or they're sexually intimate with someone to whom they're not married, <laughs> they pro that probably isn't going to go too well. Because they never signed up for this. They never made any profession to Judeo-Christian morality in the first place. So we should confront a fellow Christian when they're out of line. But when we're talking about an unbeliever, we should try to convince them of the truth. Let me illustrate it in, in this way. I want you to imagine that right here in the capital region, there's an unusual group that everybody agrees is a little weird. But here's their peculiar belief. They believe that listening to country music and going to buffets to eat is wrong. They believe that it will cut 15 to 20 years off of your life on average. That's their belief system. They believe that people who go to buffet lines, listen to, listen to country western music, man, that is just evil. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting others. It is horrible. It's going to shorten your life. So what do they do? They act on their beliefs. And so they pick it. Concerts, country concerts that come to the Times Union Center or the palace or wherever. They pick it in front about how evil and wrong this is, how destructive. They uh, pick it in front of restaurants that have buffets. 
They put billboards up. They put out ads. They speak against. It's unbelievable. They're condemning all of these, these things. Now, how would the rest of the community respond to that? How would we respond to that? At the very least, we would think they were weird. At the very least. But probably many of us would react more harshly than that. But I want to tell you, folks, if you could convince me that listening to country music and eating at buffets would shorten my lifespan by 15 to 20 years, hey, if I came to believe that, you know what? I'd probably adopt some of those behaviors. I might just join in with them. And so my point is, until we convince people that that their belief system needs to change, it's unlikely they will be too concerned about their behavior. So I hope you get the big point here. We should not expect unbelievers to act like believers until they are. Our response to those who are inside the family of God and those who are outside is often going to be quite different. A quick illustration of this biblically we can find in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul had written to the Corinthian Christians, said, look, brothers and sisters, don't have anything to do with somebody who's involved in high-handed sin. But they misunderstood him. They thought he was talking about anybody, like unbelievers and anybody. So he has to write back and clarify. He says, oh, you misunderstood. What I'm saying to you is don't associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, or a sister in Christ, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a person, don't even eat. He goes on to clarify, listen, we're supposed to judge those inside this church. Let God judge those outside. But inside the body, there is an appropriate accountability that we have. But for those outside... We're to be witnesses and not prosecuting attorneys. That is so important for us to understand. So Saul, the king of God's people, he's a professing believer. He's one of the insiders. He knows the living God. And God has given a crystal clear command and Saul blatantly disobeys it. Verse 10 reads, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I'm grieved that I've made Saul king. Because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions, Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Why was he troubled? Because he knew that God was going to give him this task of confronting the most powerful man in the land. And the simple truth is, folks, let's say it again, confronting someone with the truth is simply not an easy thing to do. I wonder, do any of you remember that weird reality show from a few years ago? Did you ever see this where these cameras went around, video cameras went around, and they, would, they paid an actor to go into restaurants, usually a diner or some fast food sort of place, and he would go in and just begin to eat French fries off of people's plates. Did you, did you see any of this? It was incredible. Total strangers, people he's never met. He would just sit down or walk by and just stand there and just start eating French fries without saying a word. You know what? The people didn't do anything. 
They didn't confront. They didn't complain. They didn't say anything. They gave him some pretty weird looks. But although they were fuming inside, they refused to confront. When somebody was just eating their french fries, because confrontation is an awfully hard thing to do. So there's a section in your notes where it says, what do we do instead of confronting? Let's talk about that for a moment. One is we pretend like everything is okay. Have you ever been out to a meal with someone and they get a piece of spinach stuck in their teeth? And it's just really, I mean, it looks really bad and it's just kind of obvious or or maybe some, don't want to be too gross here, but something's kind of coming out of their nose and they don't realize it. Or they've got food on their face and it, it really looks goofy and ridiculous. But nobody's willing to say a word, right? You've been there? I mean, and it's so awkward. And whether you're, it's one person with the individual or two or three, it doesn't matter. Everybody feels so awkward. And you know what I've observed in those settings? Most people are willing to pretend rather than get involved and say something. They're afraid of the awkwardness of confrontation, the awkwardness of just a a little truth-telling in that moment. And so they go through an entire meal pretending that everything is okay. Folks, denial is not a river in Egypt. It is a reality that many people live with. Are you thinking of someone right now that God's putting on your heart that you need to have a conversation with? Listen, you need to take that seriously. You need to have a crucial conversation with this person because God has put them on your heart. Another thing we tend to do is we make excuses for the person. We kind of rationalize their behavior. Oh, my son is just sowing his wild oats. He'll come around. Well, uh, my daughter doesn't really mean to be disrespectful. That's just the language she uses. Well, uh, my husband's acting out because you don't realize how much stress he has on him right now. Well, my buddy's wife, you know, (laughs) she really isn't meeting his needs at home. I mean, what's the guy supposed to do? And so we come up with all these rationalizations why it's really okay that this person is going down a destructive path. But we're really not excusing others. We're excusing ourselves. And we're letting our fear trump our love for these people. It happens all the time. A third thing we do is we tend to want to leave confrontation to someone who we think is more qualified. People do this with pastors all the time, by the way. Uh, Early on in the life of this church, uh, a lot of people flocked to me when they had relational issues and they needed to have a crucial conversation because they wanted me to have it for them. And wise pastors learn early on you don't want to get into that business. There are occasionally times when a pastor needs to confront. If it's a close personal friend, uh, a leader in the church, a person in a crucial position, especially if it's highly public, obviously there are times when we intervene. But I always say to people, now what's your understanding of what your biblical responsibility is? And they usually know that they've got a responsibility. 
And so this is a hard thing to do. And we try to pawn it off on others. And people will say, but, but pastor, I, you know, Jesus said, judge not. Matthew 7, judge not, judge not, lest you be judged. That is the most abused verse in the Bible. Jesus was not teaching there that we should just let people do anything they want to do. It's never our responsibility to confront or intervene or evaluate behavior. That is ridiculous. His point there, if you read on, is don't look at the speck in your brother's eye and be judgmental about that. When you've got a log in your own eye, first, first, deal with the log in your own eye. And then he doesn't say, and then let your brother be because it's none of your business. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, evaluate yourself first. Deal with the log in your own eye, your own issues. And then you'll see more clearly to help your brother or sister with their issues. We are accountable for one another. We are supposed to get involved. The Bible says in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Another thing we tend to do is we just put it off. We think the timing is bad, the situation is bad, the place is bad, a better time will come. Uh, I'll wait till the conversation will come up naturally. And of course, we all know that time virtually never arrives, right? One rule I've observed in this through many years now is that the longer you wait to confront and have an important, crucial conversation, the longer you wait, typically, the more difficult the conversation becomes. But here's what impresses me about Samuel. He was proactive about this. Oh, that's impressive. Verse 12 reads, early in the morning. In other words, God had been dealing with Samuel late at night, told him what to do. Samuel had been praying. He has trouble sleeping. He gets up early in the morning and he goes out to meet Saul. He's going to get right to it. That is impressive. Verse 13 reads, the Lord bless you. This is Saul talking. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. I don't know about you, but I think that's a guilty conscience talking. He's trying to take the conversation by the horns. He's trying to just say, look, everything's good when it's clearly not. And Samuel's words in verse, verse 14 are kind of dripping here with irony and sarcasm. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul, if you've really obeyed God, what's all this livestock about? And what does Saul do? And that's why this story is so helpful as we study confrontation. Saul immediately begins to justify himself by blaming other people. Verse 15, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Do you see what he's doing there? He's doing what many people who are involved in destructive, sinful, inappropriate behavior do. When they get confronted, he's literally trying to say, oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. My motives are totally noble. 
I'm actually doing this out of love for God. And suddenly they start sounding all pious. That's what Saul is saying here, but Samuel is not buying it. Verse 16, stop. (laughs) Do you ever hear someone just going on and you know they're just lying through their teeth and you just want to go, stop. Just stop it. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you, I love this phrase, why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And again, Saul is just defensive, as so many people are when they're being called to task. He said, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Think of what he's saying. No, no, I I didn't obey the letter of what God said, but look, I'm going to church. I'm religious. I'm going to be involved in worship. I'm going to do my religious duty. So does it really matter that I didn't obey God in all the details he gave me? These next two verses are classic. These would well be worth committing to memory. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, to obey God in your life is better than just going through the religious motions of worship. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And I I just want to warn you, what's about to happen next is not PG-13 rated, okay? They bring King Agag in, the king of the Amalekites, and he's thinking, okay, the danger's over. I've kind of ridden out this storm. Everything's going to be good now, verse 33. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, remember what I said earlier, it was kind of known They loved and just got this big charge out of killing innocent babies. So will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Wow. (laughs) Are you excited about confronting someone? (laughs) Doesn't this just pump you up? To have one of these hard conversations? Oh, no, not me. There is nothing, and I mean nothing in this story that gets me excited about doing this. But you know what? 
Perhaps that's one of the reasons this is the very story we need to study. Because at least it gives us realistic expectations about how confrontations usually go. What does Saul do when he's confronted? He denies it, he gets defensive, and then Samuel has to clean up his mess, and that's exactly the way it may go for you when you do the right thing. So as we wrap up today, I just wanna be very brief and draw three quick lessons from this that we can take away from here, this gruesome story, this tough story about an appropriate confrontation. And if God has put someone on your heart today that you know, you really know, you need to have a conversation with, it may be someone in your own family, someone very close to you, it may be a dear friend, a coworker, uh, a student, uh, someone in your sphere of influence, if God's put this person on your heart, These are three practical pieces of advice. I'm just gonna be real quick and work through them. But I assure you, these three things are critical before you have that talk. Number one, you wanna be sure you check your motivation. Please star that one. Please put an asterisk by that one. Check your motivation. Here's why I say that. Because there are all kinds of wrong motivations for confrontation. Hello, Anybody ever been there? Some people confront because they're just jealous of somebody else and they wanna see them brought down. Some people confront because they have a Messiah complex and they think God had called them to be the general manager of the universe and they wanna straighten everybody out. Some people confront because they believe they're called to be a Rambo for Jesus. And their calling in life, brother, is just to go and clean house, baby. Are you listening to me today? If you enjoy confrontation, somebody needs to confront you about who you think needs to be confronted. There's a big difference between being a truth teller and being an outright jerk, hello? We need to talk about this in the body of Christ. And we should not countenance people who are just obnoxious jerks and let them steal our joy and wreck our day. They need to be confronted. So you need to check your motivation. And the only, listen, the only appropriate motivation for confrontation is genuine love. That's what drives it all. I genuinely care about you so much, I cannot, I cannot let this go. That is the appropriate motivation. Suggestion number two. If God's put someone on your heart you need to have a conversation with, plan out what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. I won't go into the detail, but it's clear to me as I read this that Samuel put a lot of time and a lot of prayer into this confrontation before he ever went. I like Proverbs 25, 11. It says the right word at the right time is like a custom made piece of jewelry. So plan out what you're gonna say because here's what I know, you can never take it back. You say, well, I can always say I'm sorry. Well, you can never take it back. 
Once you've let those words fly, they're like feathers in the wind. You can't go find them and put them back in that feather pillow. So make sure that you prepare well. And one final suggestion. And I, I want to tell you, here's one that I, I believe many, many people struggle with. The final suggestion is this. Remember that we can't control how they're going to respond. Our responsibility is to do the right thing, to do what we know to do. But we cannot control how anyone is going to receive that. Wouldn't we like to believe that among true believers, everything is always going to turn out rosy and nice with a little bow on top? Wouldn't we like to believe it? Wouldn't we like to believe that that song is really true from years ago? Friends are friends forever when the Lord's the Lord of them. Man, I should have tried out for American Idol, shouldn't I? Yeah. But that is just not true. Friends aren't friends forever when the Lord's the Lord of them. Both scripture and real life demonstrate that over and over again. Friends aren't friends forever necessarily. If you've got a friend for life, that's awesome. What a gift. And some of our friendships are going to go all the way into eternity. That's awesome. But down here, down here, it's just not that way. And I guess that's what makes this so difficult. We just don't know how it's going to turn out. The final verse I want you to see is verse 35. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. This did not turn out so well but we still need to learn from it because that's often the way confrontations go. We can't control the outcome. Our job is to do the right thing and to do it with a heart filled with love, with a tear in our eye and with our heart breaking. Now, as we close, let me leave you with this final word. Chances are there are probably gonna be a time when God will call you to go and confront someone in love. And I would say it's even more likely that there will be a time when God will call someone to come and have a crucial conversation, a true confrontation with you. Here's my challenge. Would you appreciate that person who has enough courage and love and enough care for you to do that? Would you thank them? Would you appreciate them because there are very few people who have friends like that. In fact, I would say to you, I would challenge many of you who are in small groups and who are in meaningful relationships here at the church, would you give an invitation to the people in your life to speak into your life when they see you getting off track? There's not many people who have friends willing to do that. And it takes courage to make that request of your friends but it is well, well worth it. Father, would you help us to learn from this amazing episode in the life of Samuel? Help us to be the kind of women and men who have the courage to confront in love so that we can all grow up in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would have the kinds of deep, 
precious, healthy relationships where this kind of truth-telling would just be the norm. And we could all grow up in you and be all you designed us to be. This is our prayer, Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.